<laughs> so obviously we left some of our decorations up just to kind of continue the spirit of EBS. The Wednesday lesson was from the uh, reading that we're about to read today. We're going to read the first chapter of Daniel. Uh, I'm going to read the first seven verses now and we'll come back and read a little bit more later. Listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the author of the book of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Then the king commanded his palace master, Ashpenaz, to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years so that, so that at the end of that time they could be stationed in the king's court. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them other names. Daniel he called Betelshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Meredith, I assume that was not part of the reading for Wednesday, all those names. Okay. Whew, that was a workout. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Okay, so we hosted our annual VBS here this past week at Christ United at every Methodist congregation that I've served over the past 20 years, VBS has been an important focus of the summer calendar, uh, the biggest event that children's ministries hosts each year. And I have long believed that VBS is one of the most important things that we do as a congregation. It's obviously a big task for our children's ministry team. It's obviously a big commitment for the volunteers who give their uh, a full week of their time, not to mention all the preparation ahead of time to make it happen. And it's a significant investment of resources by our church to set aside a week each year to be taken over by VBS. Now, the next two weeks are similarly huge events as our senior high youth uh, leave this afternoon on mission trip. And the following week, when our youth choir heads to Washington, D.C. on their adult choir tour, I will not see my oldest child for a couple of weeks <laughs> beginning this afternoon. We're going to talk about those two trips in the coming weeks, but uh, today we're focused on BBS. And you probably know that Vacation Bible School really serves two functions. Uh, first, it's a, a tangible expression of our responsibility and commitment to help raise children in the faith. We believe that's the job of the entire church, not just the parents. And then second, it's easily our biggest outreach event for the, uh, to the local community. It's five days of dedicated time where we get to tell kids about Jesus and show them the importance of being in a community of faith. Now, this past week, uh, we hosted almost 250 kids here on our campus, and that takes a lot of adults. <laughs> there were almost 100 adult and youth volunteers who made last week happen. Many of them are here today. If you are one of those volunteers, children or youth, will you please stand? Don't be shy. Y'all made it happen, and we're super grateful for y'all. (laughs) 
Our theme was food truck party, as Meredith talked, uh, told us about on the video. Uh, we spent five days talking about how God is the source of all of our blessings. You saw it. There was singing and dancing. There were science experiments. Of course, there were snacks. Of course, there were Bible stories. And uh, by the end of the week, almost 250 kids, as well as the almost 100 volunteers who hosted them, had drawn a little closer to God than they were when they showed up on Monday morning. I have an incredibly soft space in my heart for VBS. My own two boys have drawn closer to God thanks to VBS. They spend a lot of time in church, as you might imagine, but VBS has always been a highlight of their year. And the themes over the years have always been creative and engaging, space travel, uh, river rafting, superheroes, surf shack, medieval castle. I could go on and on. And for many years in their lives, the music of VBS provided the soundtrack for the summer. Uh, and became, in some ways, the, the soundtrack of my kids' faith for that season of their lives. I'm forever grateful for all of the staff and the countless volunteers and the various churches we've served over the years who have made these weeks possible for my own boys, but of course, not just for my own kids and not just for the kids of our church members who will always have such fond memories of these weeks each summer, but also for all the children who otherwise would never darken the doors of a church, all the kids whose uh, only chance to truly, to truly learn about Jesus in an intentional way is through VBS. It is a unique opportunity that we have every year because there is no other single event in the life of the church where so many unchurched families participate. Now, Christmas and Easter are wonderful, of course, uh, but people who only attend church on those days tend to be celebrating the holidays more than uh, show up to grow in their faith, which is okay, of course. Uh, the more visitors on Christmas and Easter that we have, the better, if you ask me. I believe the Holy Spirit can absolutely work in that. Uh, but there is no other single event in the life of the church where we get to the chance to share our faith with with so many kids whom we otherwise would not meet. To introduce children to Jesus and to the hospitality of Christ Church and to the hospitality specifically of Christ United. And to, to share with them a healthy theology upon which they might someday build a grace-filled, faithful Christian identity. Today we're talking about that scripture uh, from uh, Daniel, that was one of the focus areas for VBS this week. The book of Daniel is part story, part apocalyptic vision. Uh, our scripture comes from the story part of Daniel, which makes sense. There's no sense to, in freaking out kids at VBS with apocalyptic stuff, right? That would be, uh, entertaining, I suppose, but it would freak them out for sure. So we stuck with the story part of Daniel, and the stories in Daniel are about God's people living in exile in Babylon. Now, this was the reign during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, as the text mentioned, after the destruction of Jerusalem, as the text mentioned. And it really is impossible to overstate just how uh, traumatic the exile was in our faith history. It's impossible to overstate just how much the Babylonians were the enemy of all that God's people stood for. And so the book opens... Um, with the exiles living not just as strangers in a strange land, which would have been hard enough, but living among the enemy who had destroyed their way of life. 
In the words of the introduction to the book of Daniel in the Wesley Study Bible, quote, in that unbelieving world, God's people take their place, bear their witness, and make their difference. So at the beginning of the book, we read that four young Israelites will be enrolled in a three-year course that's going to prepare them for service to the king. They receive new Babylonian names. They're going to learn the Babylonian language and culture, and they're going to have uh, the opportunity for great honor and esteem in the land of their conquerors. Their challenge, according to these opening verses of the book of Daniel, will be how to live in this non-believing culture while remaining true to their identity. So let's see how they do. This is Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 to 15. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. So he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. Now God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion from the palace master. The palace master said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king. He has appointed you your food and your drink. If he should see you in poorer condition than than the other young men of your own age, you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel asked the guard whom the palace master had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. You can then compare our appearance with the appearance of the young men who eat the royal rations and deal with your servants according to what you observe. So he agreed to this proposal and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was observed that they appeared better and fatter than all the young men who had been eating the royal rations. So what we did with this text during VBS this week is talk about how um, this story shows that God provides, which God most certainly does. There's, that's an important lesson to teach our kids. But if we, if we zoom out to the broader picture of the book of Daniel, there's an even, an even bigger point being made here. Or maybe better put, there's a, a bigger, more important theological question being asked. How are God's people to act How are God's people to live in a culture that is not, in fact, godly? God's faithful, after all, are called to be in the world, but not of the world. And so how do we maintain our faithful identity while living in a world that tries to uh, co-opt us into its own worldview, its own value system, a value system that is so often at odds with God's vision For the world. This was obviously an important question during the time of the exile when God's people had been taken from Jerusalem to live in Babylon. But it seems to me it's a question we should be asking ourselves in our own place and time, and certainly a question we should be asking on behalf of our children who are growing up in a culture that that teaches and even celebrates values that run counter to the values of our faith. So if we just did a thought experiment, If our kids only learned from popular culture, so from television, from movies, from video games, uh, from music, from sports, and God forbid from politics, what would they learn? If they were not raised in the faith, and by that specifically I mean raised in the church that invests so much in teaching them Christian values, who are they likely to grow up to be? As you might imagine, this is a 
a question that's on my mind quite a bit as a pastor and more importantly as a parent. They might learn uh, from the culture, for example, that life is about winners and losers and that they should be about winning at all costs. You certainly could pick that up from our culture. They would certainly not learn about God's heart for those whom Matthew's gospel calls the least of these, for those on the margins. They might learn from the culture uh, that life is all about the individual, right? About my own wants and needs, and that nothing bigger than myself matters. You could certainly see where you'd get that message from our culture. They would certainly not learn Jesus' example, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. So then, should we? If our kids only learned about life from popular culture and not from a faith perspective, they might they might learn that, that personal rights are more important than our responsibilities to each other. They would certainly not learn the sacrificial example of Christ or the two great commandments to love God and to love neighbor. They might learn from the culture to be excellent consumers, that accumulation of money and stuff is the ultimate goal, the ultimate, ultimate measuring stick of achievement, and that greed is rewarded over generosity. They would certainly not learn the the biblical expectation that as fellow children of God, we're in fact connected to one another and that we're expected to care for the widow and the orphan, the poor and the stranger. Growing up today in an era of social media and superheated politics, if their identity was only formed by social media and superheated politics, our kids uh, would be just immersed in a culture of strife and jealousy and anger and quarrels and dissensions and factions and envy, all of which are specifically named by the Apostle Paul as the works of the flesh in his letter to the Galatians. Without faith, they would certainly not learn that God's people are called to what Paul refers to as the fruit of the Spirit, which I'm sure you know are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of which is to say, at the end of VBS week, this, this week each year when we invest so much in intentionally seeking to reinforce and in some cases introduce faith identity to the children in our midst, the book of Daniel has an important word for us about how vital that faith identity is in a world that is, that is too often hostile to it. So in the first chapter of Daniel, we're introduced to the title character and his three friends. It's not entirely clear why they choose to eat only vegetables. Um, this does not seem to be a specific recommendation for a plant-based diet forever. That, I don't think that's what's going on here. Um, the implication is that the Babylonian food was prepared in a way that's inconsistent with the law of Moses. Maybe it's that, or, you know, maybe uh, it's... Daniel wanted to refuse the royal rations because he didn't want to feel beholden to the king. He didn't want to feel as though he owed the king in some way. Regardless, the story served to highlight the importance of clinging to faith identity in a hostile world. In refusing the royal rations, they were avoiding moral defilement, and they were being clear who they were in the midst, not just of a hostile culture, but at the the very center and pinnacle of that culture. So, let's see how it turned out. 
So the guard continued to withdraw their royal rations and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So these four young men, uh, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Daniel also had insight into all visions and dreams. At the end of the time that the king had set for them to be brought in, the palace master brought them into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among them all, no one was found to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they were stationed in the king's court. In every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel continued there until the first year of King Cyrus, which is when the exile ended 50 years later. So these four exiles were given literally the opportunity of a lifetime to fill these coveted roles in the king's court. The easy path, the path of least resistance, would have been to capitulate to the culture, to assimilate, to eat the finest food available and to live out their days in ease and comfort, in luxury, at the pinnacle of the ungodly culture in which they found themselves. But they, they chose a different path. They chose the riskier path. They chose the path of faith in which they had been formed, the path that defined who they were and, and whose they were. Daniel and his friends remained true to their faith even at the risk of losing their positions of privilege and potentially even their heads. (laughs) And in so doing, they become heroes of the faith for every future generation of God's faithful. The end of our reading tells us that they, they win approval of the king, not because of their appearance. We're actually not told that the king knows anything about their refusing the royal rations, but because of their wisdom, uh, which the reader knows, we know as the reader comes from God. The scripture tells us that God remained faithful to them, which of course could be an entire sermon or an entire sermon series in itself. But today we're focusing on the the choice that Daniel and his friends made. Their insistence on remaining true to who they were and whose they were, their insistence on remaining true to their identity that had been built on faith. Which of course is our mission at Vacation Bible School each year. Helping build the faith identity of our kids. That's what it's all about. I mean, the singing and the dancing and Brian's awesome dance moves during the week and the snacks and the science experiments and all the energy it takes to pull all that off. That's It's all fun, but ultimately it's about faith identity. As parents and grandparents, our job is to give our kids a foundation in the faith. That's what we, that's what we promise when we baptize them in the church. As the church, our job is to provide opportunities to do so. That's what we promise when we baptize babies here in the church. And days like this, when we're celebrating one of the biggest events that we do every year, gives us all the chance to check in with how true we're being to our own identity in Christ. Daniel and his friends had to make a choice, intentionally claiming their faith identity in a hostile culture. That was their choice. Are we as bold in clinging to our identity as God's faithful? Do we consistently choose the values and worldview of our faith? Or do we give in to the very strong temptation to assimilate 
to the culture that tries to co-opt us over and over again. There's an author whose name you may know, Ralph Ellison. Uh, he wrote one of the most important books of the 20th century. He was a graduate of the Tuskegee Institute. He moved to New York after college uh, where he met such literary giants as Langston Hughes and Richard Wright. I read Richard Wright's novel, Native Son, in high school. was really moved by it. And I had been meaning to, to read Invisible Man, this, this novel by Ralph Ellison, uh, ever since. Didn't get around to it until last year. If you've not read it, I think it's worth your time. It won the, the 1953 U.S. National Book Award for Fiction. It's kind of in the pantheon of 20th century American literature. And it's about um, the search for meaning and identity in the midst of a hostile culture. And although it is not a novel about the Christian faith, there is a sentiment expressed by its title character that uh, certainly applies to our spiritual journey as he tr- as he's trying to figure out who he is in the world he says when i discover who i am i'll be free <laughs> that's true <laughs> when we discover who we are we are free and for us as followers of jesus who we are is very clear christians we are first and foremost christians trying to live our lives in accordance with his teaching and example as best we can each day. And when we do that, we truly have freedom in him. Friends, what we do here in the church, so much of what we do here in the church, maybe almost all of what we do in the church is about identity building. (laughs) In a world whose values are so often at odds with the values of our faith. So on this particular day, I give thanks to God for the, for the biblical stories of the ones who show us the way. I give thanks to God for uh, the chance that we had this past week to share those stories with the children in our lives. And I especially give thanks to God for this particular community of faith who reminds us over and over again just who we are in Christ. Thanks be to God.